Hey, this is Michael. Thanks so much for listening to Soma's podcast. Before this week's teaching, I just want to take a second and thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing and subscribing. It makes a huge impact. Enjoy the message. So this is uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So we mentioned this last week, but uh, most of us and most of the people you know, we don't struggle with the idea of God. We don't struggle with the idea of uh, eternity or heaven or some kind of spiritual reality. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he puts eternity in the heart of man. So everybody that you and I know is trying to figure that out. There's a very small percentage of the population that just have entirely like uh, given up on the idea of something outside of themselves. But everybody's like, yeah, God, right? Okay, their version of it, at least, is what we talked about last week. And so people don't have an issue with the idea of God. People have an issue with the idea that God is going to tell them what to do. <laughs> which is Pharaoh's problem. So Pharaoh's like, yeah, whatever, you have a God, great. But no, he's not my Lord. And no, I'm not going to let your people go. And no, that's ridiculous. And so um, the idea is there is a God. This is the, the thing that we experience. There is a God. Uh, he's in control. He's sovereign. He created everything we see. But he doesn't get to tell me what to do with my life. He doesn't get to tell me how to deal with my relationships. He doesn't get to tell me what to do with my money or with my time. He doesn't get to tell me how to, uh, what my purpose is. He doesn't get to tell me what my boundaries should be. Don't get in my business. Basically, there is a God, and I will do what I want. That's kind of how we live a lot of times. And it sounds a lot like this. It sounds a lot like, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so the Bible tells us that God is compassionate, that God is slow to anger, that God is full of mercy, and we're like, yeah, that's my God. That's good. Look, look at this. This is uh, Psalm 18, uh, excuse me, Psalm 86, 15. But you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious. You're a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And we love that. We're like, yes, that is my God, but this is also our God. This is Psalm 18, 25 through 27. It says, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. We're like, awesome. To the devious, you show yourself shrewd. Uh-oh. Like, I don't, want to be, I don't want him to show himself shrewd to me, okay? It says, you save the humble, but bring out, uh, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. I love that phrasing. I feel like we need to say that. I feel like if we have people in our life who are prideful or who are arrogant, somebody at work, somebody in your family says something a little arrogant, you need to be like, bro, you, your eyes are haughty, man. Like you have haughty eyes. Like you should use that. I would just bring that, bring that back. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd and bring arrogant people low. Uh, and so this is what we're learning in the plagues. We started last week. We talked about the first three plagues. But the whole idea is that God's going to war with the pride, with the arrogance, with the idolatry of the people of Egypt, specifically Pharaoh, and all of it, really is going to war with evil, is what he's going to war with. And so God's issued a word given through Moses, Pharaoh's in denial, I don't know your God, I don't agree to have him lord over me, and I don't consent to you going out to worship him, I don't consent to your people leaving. And so with each of the plagues, God is teaching Pharaoh in Egypt a hard lesson on who he is and who they are in relationship to who he is which is the lesson that he teaches us all the time if we're paying attention. So 
This is for us. And just to kind of summarize, because we're covering all summer long the book of Exodus, and it is a lot of scripture. It's a lot. Okay, so, and, and this is one of the more f- familiar passages of scripture for a lot of you if you're used to the Bible and you've been in church a while. So I'm just going to summarize some of these plagues and give some commentary. There's really three things I want to lean in on, but I want, I want to give some commentary on the front end. So last week we hit the first three plagues, right? So we hit the Nile turns to blood, the frogs, and we hit the gnats. If you were here last week, if you missed, if you ever miss a week, just jump online and you can, you can get caught up. But God went after the false gods that represented the fulfillment, the fulfillment of life, fruitfulness, and the success and comfort. Those are all represented in those three plagues is what we talked about. And so by the third plague, we mentioned this last week, by the third plague, game is over, right? The gnats are the miracle. The gnats uh, is the plague that the high priest, the magicians of Pharaoh can't replicate. There's no parlor trick for that. They look out and the gnats are everywhere and they're like, yeah, we can't do that, bro. That's different. That hits different. And so uh, that's what the Bible tells us. So basically it's a boxing match between God and Pharaoh. By round three, my, my man's just standing there. He's just getting beat. He's just getting punched the rest of the time. And so they go 10 rounds, but only because God wants to. And uh, he's just standing there for the rest of those seven uh, plagues. And so right after the gnats is uh, the flies. This is chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. So um, there's a swarm of gnats in the, this plague, uh, the third plague, and then there's a swarm of flies in the fourth plague. Look at this in Exodus 8, 21 through 22. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you know that I, the Lord, am in this land. And so, um, just like the gnats is a little bit different, because now all of a sudden, they can't replicate the miracle. They can't replicate the plague. Plague number four is a little bit different because now God begins to separate his judgment out. So no longer is it everybody experiencing the same thing, but now Egypt in particular, I'm just going to target your butt. My people over here in Goshen, they're good. They're just going to watch it play out. I want you to imagine this. Imagine there's like, so flies everywhere, okay? Somebody's just got, there's just flies. There's just flies. And then there's no flies, okay? It's like if you've been to, uh, if, I remember growing up, and we, it rained one time. It was a really heavy rain, but it was raining only in the backyard. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Raining in the backyard, not in the front yard. Real weird. It's like if you're driving down the road and you see like a wall of rain. Have you ever had that happen where you just drive into rain? It's like it's not raining where you're at, but it's like it's coming. I could see it. And so in my mind, that's kind of what the flies are like. Like the fly, it's just flies. And the people of God are standing in Goshen just eating some popcorn, watching this junk play out like, yo, that's great. Like there's just flies everywhere on them. And so that's what, that's what the scripture tells us what it looks like. Uh, the popcorn part is my commentary. That's not in there. So the livestock plague is right after this. So flies and then livestock. Uh, the livestock plague is just like the flies in that God sends a plague on the livestock and then it wipes out the entire economy of the Egyptians. But he targets the Egyptians. Look at this. This is chapter 9, 3 through 4 and 7. The, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field. 
on your horses and your donkeys and your camels and on your cattle and your sheep and the goats, even the goats, okay? But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Don't you know some donkeys up in Israel were like, thank you, Jesus, we, we over here, we on this side, you know what I mean? We on this team, Team Israel. Anyway, Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died Yet his heart was unyielding and would not let the people go. And so, all man, cattle and horses and donkeys and camels, this is not like a small amount. This is not like five animals. This is all of Egypt. This is a lot of beef. Just laying in the streets. Just, just livestock everywhere dead. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh sees it. He sees everything. Like, they're taking inventory. Hey, is everything dead? Everything's dead. Okay. Okay, great. And then he looks at the Israelites and not a single one of their animals, not a single one of their livestock. And, and yet in that moment, Pharaoh decided, I'm locking in. I'm locking in. We're still going to do this. Like, that would have been the moment for me. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is getting crazy, right? So, and, and the thing that's nuts about the livestock is it was the primary source of economy for them. It was a huge, massive chunk of their economy. You and I are thinking in terms of animals. You and I are thinking in terms maybe of food. For them, it's like money. It's like their economy. It's like going to war with someone, and right before you go to war with them, they basically just decimate your economy before you try and go to war with them. And so that's what God's doing with uh, the Egyptians in the livestock plague. And you keep going on, Right? There's no, there's no letting up. And so um, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Bible tells us he hardens his heart. He sees that the livestock's dead. He sees that the Israelites' livestock's good. He doesn't care. He's, he just keeps going. So chapter 9, we read about the boils. Um, and this is, a, this is an epic scene because Moses walks up to Pharaoh in his court and takes soot and just chunks it in the air. And again, the way that I read the Bible, it's kind of like that moment like LeBron before the game when he gets some of that some of that powder, you know, and he just walks up and he just does that, does that number. Like that, in my mind, that's what Moses does when he walks up to Pharaoh. He just walks up and he's like, and he just, I mean, he walks away. Uh, he probably did it super humble. You know what I mean? It probably like, it's probably not, not a scene at all. I would have made it, I would have been super theatrical with it. You know what I mean? Which is why the Lord has never asked me to do anything like that. But Moses, he goes and he, 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 he throws it up in the air. Bible tells us that boils, sores begin to just show up on all of the Egyptians. Game changer, you would think. And yet, and yet, it's not. Now, here's what's crazy about this one. Uh, This is the first time that we see in Scripture, instead of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, here's what it says in chapter 9. This should scare you uh, in a good way. Chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. So, uh, So instead of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, by the sixth plague... God is going, hey, I'm, I'm just going to give you what you want. And that's what it looks like because we read that and we go, man, that's not fair. Of course, Pharaoh didn't repent. Of course, Pharaoh didn't obey God. Of course, Pharaoh, like God is literally making Pharaoh do, he's like he's hardening his heart. But this is the sixth plague. And for the first five, he made his own decision. And what happens is anytime we're in willful sin, God will eventually just give you over to the things that you really want. That's what the Bible tells us. Hey, you go after it long enough. You disobey long enough. You pursue what you want long enough. And and instead of that tension or that wrestle that we feel sometimes in our flesh between knowing the right thing or the thing that God wants us to do and the the thing that we really want, like God's like, fine, take it. And so that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture. Um, 
This is, Paul gives us some commentary on this in, in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, talks about some people who are given over to their desires, given over to their flesh, given over to their sin. They really want a certain thing, and, they, and then God's like, fine, take it. And I love the way that the message paraphrasing puts it. It says this, God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worship the God they made instead of the God who made them, the God we bless, the God who blesses us. And so uh, that's what begins to happen with the boils. Now all of a sudden, God begins to harden the heart of Pharaoh and give him over to the thing that he said he wanted from day one to make, basically to make a point out of Pharaoh and out of Egypt and, and, and to put his name on display, to bring him glory. And so just to kind of give some commentary to the last few plagues. So uh, after that, we have hail. Bible tells us whenever hail falls, God tells everybody, hey, I'm going to make it rain, uh, chunks of ice. And when I do, you need to find some cover. You need to find some shelter or you're going to die. And so the people, even the Egyptians, there were Egyptians who feared God, the Bible tells us. And they got their people and they got their kids and they got all their stuff inside under doors. The people who didn't listen didn't and bible tells us that they died this isn't sleet it's not like a little it's not like a little it's not like a cute hail this is like softball size kill the brother hail falling down ruin the crops like there's two different crops that it ruins and people people die and so uh, not only is it hail but people are dying during this plague and so that's what we see during that one uh again pharaoh uh, pharaoh's like all right this is crazy you win pray call off your dogs and then he prays and then what happens is Bible tells us his heart is hardened. And then we keep going on to the next plague, locusts. And so what the hail didn't take care of, all the livestock are dead. Now the crops are dead. Now there's people dead laying in the streets. And then, um, and then uh, the la- excuse me, one of the last plagues is, is locusts. And it's just to kind of come and clean up all the things that didn't get hit. So like all of the other crops that existed, the locusts just take care of. And the Bible says that there were so many locusts that the, the ground was black. Some of y'all are not bug people, okay? Like, just let that hit for a minute. Some of y'all, if you see one ant, you know what I mean? You're calling the pest control people. You're like, oh, no, we ain't. Do-. Like, just imagine locusts, but everywhere, all over, all, all the places, right? And so locusts are everywhere. And then, uh, again, hardens his heart, doesn't listen, and then uh, kind of gets to this space. You've lost everything. People are dead. All the livestock's gone. All the crops are gone. What could we possibly, at least we got the sun. You know what I mean? Ray, we got the sun, God. It's great. We can rebuild some stuff. We grow some new crops. It'd be okay. We got Ray. We're good. And then God's like, no, you don't. Boom. And it just makes it dark, right, is what the Bible tells us. So he blots out the sun. And then even all the way up to the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh just continues to to have his heart hardened, the Bible tells us. First five of the um, plagues, he hardened his own heart, and towards the end, God hardens his heart. So here's three, three observations today about the plagues in general, uh, and this is what I think God's teaching the people uh, of Egypt and, and Israelites. I think he's teaching me and you these things today. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first one is this. God is the only God. Every plague is meant to point to this. All of them are meant to point to this. All of them, he basically makes a mockery of the Egyptian gods, and he's basically pointing to the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm sovereign, I'm in control. This is Psalm 96.5. 
For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so each of the plagues, there's this corresponding Egyptian God. And the Egyptians, and even the Israelites, even the Israelites, they had built their lives around the appeasement of these gods. Trying to earn favor. And then God comes along and exposes all of them as false gods. And then shows everybody that they have misaligned priorities. They've been worshiping things that cannot sustain. He's teaching us the same thing. Hey, these things don't sustain. These things don't bring life. You're literally worshiping creation instead of the creator. And so God's going to battle with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of human history up to this point. And Pharaoh ain't broke. I don't know if you've ever seen the Discovery Channel, if you've ever watched like the behind the scenes where they go into pyramids or whatever. Remember, I remember back in the day studying like King Tut and they found King Tut and then they found like a ridiculous amount of wealth just buried in the pyramid. Like you don't know what these brothers need in the afterlife. Let's just give them some goods. You know what I mean? So he has like all of all this gold, all this treasure, all this wealth stored. That's just what they put inside the tomb. You know what I mean? That's just what's in there. Uh, Not even what they had at their disposal. So most powerful man, right? Most powerful nation seen as a God. And yet God makes quick work of him in this passage and in these plagues for all of his power and all of his wealth and all of his influence. He couldn't control the situation. He couldn't account for the hand of God. He couldn't strike back. The word plague means to strike. That's what it means. So that's the reason why I I referenced the boxing because that's in my mind. That's how I'm thinking. I'm like, God is just whooping up on some evil and by round three is the game is over and the guy's just standing there taking a blow so god is just just beating the competition punching evil in the face uh and and the egyptians go 10 rounds with god because of the hardening of pharaoh's heart but by round three it's over and you and i we look at pharaoh and we look at the egyptians and we go well good like i'm glad i love jesus right i'm glad i worship jesus Man, I'm glad I don't have misaligned priorities. I'm glad I don't worship false gods. I'm glad I don't have idols that I have to deal with. Uh, And yet, all of us, all the time, we, we make a choice between what we know is right, what we know God's calling us to, who we're becoming, or the God of comfort, the God of happiness, the God of power, the God of prestige, the God of money, the God of, like, physical health. Whatever you think, whatever you place your trust and your future in. I want you to think about how much, just this week, ask this question. How much of your personal headspace is dedicated towards becoming who God created you to be? How much time and energy have we put into that this week? Who am I, God, who do you want me to be? Like, who do you want me to become? How much time and energy is there versus, man, I, I really want to eat this when I want to eat this, or I really want to watch this show, or I really want to go here, or I really want to spend money in this way. I don't really want, like, think about all the time and the energy that we spend on all the other things. Right? And it's not that those things are bad, it's just that you're putting them over who he's asked you to become. Again, have no other gods before me, and then everything else kind of flows out of that. And so, honestly, we struggle with some of the same things that the Egyptians struggle with. The call to fully surrender makes Pharaoh uncomfortable because he hasn't needed God so far. He's able, he's powerful, 
He's wealthy. Brother's good. He's got it. He's healthy. He's great. He looks amazing. You know what I mean? Uh, you ever looked at like Egyptians, uh, like hieroglyphics and stuff from back in the day, pictures of people? Their brothers were manicured. You know what I mean? His eyebrows looked amazing. He was awesome. He had it going on. He had everything that you could possibly want. It's like, I'm good. I don't need God. And so what happens is uh, only in the stripping away of all the things that he felt he had control over does God reveal to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is in fact Lord of nothing. You ain't Lord of nothing. So one of the ways that we can see that we struggle with the same mindset of Pharaoh is in putting, uh, in putting God in his place, putting him on the throne and Lord over our lives is the way that we credit ourselves with the things that we collect or accomplish. I think it's so funny that anytime life is going great, you know what I mean? I do this too. Anytime life is going great, anytime there's things to celebrate, anytime you're crushing it, you're successful, you're like, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. We've been working hard. We've been working hard, you know? Uh, and so you just like begin to take credit for all the cool things that's happening in your life. What happens when it hits the fan? What happens when everything falls apart, right? Man, can you believe what so-and-so did? So-and-so did that to me. Or like, can you believe what God did? Uh, man, I mean, it's just like, I don't understand God. I don't understand why I have to go through this hard thing. And so it's like anytime bad things happen, it's somebody else's problem. Somebody did it to you or the Lord did it to you. Anytime something awesome is going on, it's like, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, it's so good. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like airplanes. Airplanes is a great example. How many people, like thousands, I don't even know, Crazy amounts of people every single day. You go to an airport and you watch these planes take off and they land, take off and they land. Hundreds of people in these suckers. And every single day they take off and land. Nobody anywhere is like, praise God, we went another day and no plane fell out of the sky. It's insane. It's not natural. It's a big chunk of metal floating in the air and then it makes it like, it's insane. And I understand there's science behind it. Don't email me. I'm just saying, like, it's nuts. that We, we lift off. We trust people. We're like, yeah, they're fine. They're totally like psychologically they're in a great place they're really healthy mentally it's great yeah two or three hundred of us just take us up in the air and then land you know like every single day this happens and no one is ever like thank god but what happens when the plane crashes where is god i don't understand i don't understand lord why is it it's like so dumb this is what we do with our lives over and over again hard things happen and we're like god what's wrong like we're and, and meanwhile, it's like we don't take inventory or express gratitude for all the amazing that God does every single day. And this is the story over and over again. Again, it, it, it reveals to us kind of where our heart is, kind of where our mind is for who we are in relationship to who God is. We're the Lord of nothing. And so we, we just have a jacked up view sometimes of who God is. And, and what he's teaching us in the plagues is, hey, you can be humble or I can humble you. You can be humbled. That's what we see for Pharaoh. And so um, here's one of the ways that God makes sure that everybody knows he's the real deal compared to all of these other false gods in the plagues. So uh, he pretty much just pits all of creation against Pharaoh, if you think about it. God uses land. God uses sea. God uses animals, and he uses insects. He makes it hail. He even blots out the sun, and he reminds all of us that he's in charge of creation by cre pitting creation against evil itself. So they're worshiping all of these smaller gods that represents parts of creation, and it's kind of insane, right? This is what Nehemiah 9.6 says, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and the highest heavens and all their starry hosts and the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So part of what God is getting at 
in the plagues is, hey, fellas, I'm the creator. Why in the world are you worshiping the sun? This makes no sense. I'm Lord of, over it. I created it. Like, let me show you who I'm at. God in the plagues is telling us, stop worshiping creation. I'm the creator. And so he's showing everybody who he is, that there's one God, but there's something else that he shows us in the text. God is teaching us that he's just. So God is just is my next point if you're taking notes. So God is progressively doing work on the Egyptians. After the third plague, it starts to be something that only the Egyptians are dealing with while the Israelites look on. Chapter 9, verse 23 through 26. Here's how it reads. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. So why the different treatment? Like, why? You and I read that and we're going, man, you know good and well there's some like well-meaning Egyptians or some kind Egyptians or some people that, even the Bible tells us some people who feared the Lord that were Egyptian. They're probably some really stupid Israelites too. Let's be real, okay? Some real dummies. Why the Israelites and why not these people? Why the land of Goshen? Because they were his people. Because he had a covenant. Because he said, these are my people. I got a relationship with these people. All right? The good, bad, and the ugly. The Exodus story, and specifically the plagues, is a reminder that we serve a God who loves us, who's in relationship with us. It's about the relationship. Who's for us, who makes a way and will deliver and will also go to war over us. Will go to war for us. Um, We serve a God who is great in love. And out of that great love, uh, we see expressed in Scripture, comes this idea of wrath. Now, wrath is not very popular. Let's just be real. The wrath of God, not something that a lot of people like to preach about. Just Justice, also really not something a lot of people like to talk about. And yet, it's kind of a big deal to God. Why? Because the love of God compels wrath. The love of God compels him to show up and fight for you. Anybody, y'all ever been to um, a Little League game? And, and you go to a Little League game, it could be a football game, baseball game, pick, pick whatever, soccer. And one of the players on your team gets pushed down. One of the players on your team gets hit with a baseball, but intentionally. One of the players on your team gets, you know, like chewed out by one of the other coaches. One of your, like somebody, you know, there's an offense on your team. Little boy gets hit, little boy gets pushed, little boy, whatever, little girl. And, and, some, and what happens to the parent in the stands whenever that happens? Oh, like you, this is like, oh my God, I'm going to kill somebody. Like you, like you never know that you can murder somebody until you hold your baby like, after they're born, you're like, yeah, I could def- I can murder someone. Yep, it's in me, right? So that happens on these little league games. People stand up, and they just lose their minds. Parents lose their minds. Same mama who was passing out sunflower seeds before the game is about to pass something else out in Jesus' name, right? Whenever a little boy gets hit, she's like, oh, my goodness. I remember years ago, uh, Brooke and I went to, um, we went to some friend's house, and these, these friends, we love them. They're great. Uh, did not parent. They did not parent. It's whatever the opposite of like, whatever the, the opposite of helicopter mom is, it was like that, but it was like off the charts. Like had no clue what was going on. And so um, our kids were younger at the time. One of our daughters, Emily, she would, uh, she would come home sometimes. She'd be crying. She'd have bruises. We couldn't understand what was going on. And so Brooke was like, I'm about to investigate what's happening 
to my baby girl. So she's, she's standing, she's hiding, kind of watching this play out. And, and one of the kids there, when the parents would turn their back, she would trip Emily. She'd push Emily down. She'd hit Emily. And Brooke, in her great love for her daughter, she loves her daughter. Something in her came out. You know what I'm saying? This bend towards righteousness. This bend towards, uh, towards, <laughs> this bend towards, this wrath in mama came out, right? AKA mama went shell. And she, she, well, she went over to this little girl. Now she didn't, but she began to discipline this little girl in ways that her parents did not. They're just kind of abdicated, whatever. Brooke was like, no, ma'am, we don't do that. Like every time she would trip, every time she would push, every time she would hit, corrective behavior, discipline. No, you go to the corner. Like, you know, she would just parent somebody else's kid. It was real awkward. But, but it's, only because, it's only because of her great love for Emily that this is like, no. And, and anytime you see an injustice, we see this even for not our kids. Anytime you see like a crazy injustice, something just, something just shifts inside of you. You know that anger, that righteous anger that shows up? That's wrath. And so God goes to war with the Egyptians. God goes to war with all of these evil people in the Old Testament. Why? Wrath. He's going, no, sir. Like, that, that ain't, that's not how we're playing that. Um, and so that, God is just. That's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that he's just. And so God loves us. And when we treat each other poorly, when we're unkind, when we hurt others, when we don't love our neighbor and treat each other uh, as, as we want to be treated ourselves, God sees it and he will handle it. Even if you never see him handle it, which is part of the problem. So sometimes there's things that happen to us or injustices that happen to us. And we think that people get away. They don't get away. The Bible tells us they do not get away with injustice. This is uh, Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. So it should comfort us to know that any injustice that you and I suffer, God handles it. Right? It doesn't go unrepaid. That's justice. God sees it and he will handle business. Now, it should also scare you a little bit that any injustice, that all injustice doesn't go unrepaid. Which means anytime you're unjust to other people, it will get paid. Right? And so, uh, and what does that mean for you and I, for Jesus followers? Like new covenant, like in Christ, what does this mean for us? As Christians, it should encourage us to know uh, like for those of us who just are well aware of our sin and our brokenness and our injustice and our predispositions to be selfish, that the same judge that we have to stand before one day and give an account for our lives is also our heavenly father. So like, imagine this, you walk into a courtroom and you know, you're guilty. You're like, Oh man, I'm so guilty. I am very guilty. You walk into this courtroom, you look up at the bench and at the bench is your heavenly dad who loves you for you, extends all like just it's, no one's been for you the way that he's for you. As a matter of fact, it's, it's your dad, and, and he's on the bench, and you're like, what? And you look over, and the witness stand is Jesus, and Jesus says, yep, uh, he did it, but also I'm going to pay for it. I got it. I got the tab. And so that's the gospel, the gospel message, and that's also justice. That's also just. And so how does God, record, like, how does God deal with us in a just way but also extend grace, and it's only through Jesus? That's it. And so what we see in the Old Testament is Jesus hadn't shown up yet. God's dealing with some things, with some wrath, and by the time of Christ, Jesus shows up on the scene and reconciles all things to himself, and it's the fulfillment of the law. Basically, Jesus steps onto the scene and says, hey, justice is still a thing, 
But I'm taking their sin. I'm taking their shame. I'm taking their brokenness. I'm taking their wrong choices. They pushed a kid. They punched a kid. They tripped a kid. I got it. I'm going to pay for it. And so uh, that's what we see. And that's just, which leads me to my last point. This is my last point. God is a gracious Savior. He's a gracious Savior. So yes, he's just. He will deal with it. But also, he's gracious. Uh, We've said this already, but the first three plagues, everyone endured. And then the last seven uh, are reserved uh, for the people of Egypt. And so uh, I'm going to read another one, Exodus 8, 22 through 23. On that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. And then he says this, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And so the fourth through the tenth, tenth plagues, God protects the Israelites and they don't experience the wrath of God like the Egyptians. Why? Because they're better? Because they're better? Because they're more pure? Because they're more righteous? You know good and well there were some Egyptians who were super great, super moral, right? No, that's not why. Because they were his. They get out of Egypt, and and these same people that God saves, same people that God delivers, they get out of Egypt, and they decide, like, in their fear, they're just like, what are we going to do? Where's Moses at? We don't know what to do. Let's build a golden calf and worship that sucker. And and they build it. A lot of Bible scholars tell us that they build it in the, uh, it's kind of a nod to Apis, which is the the livestock god. Remember the livestock plate? So they, they build this this dumb idol, and they start worshiping. They're a foolish, they're, these are a dumb people. And yet God loves them, is for them, has a covenant with them, and keeps his promises, which is really good news for me and you, right? And so it's only because he's trying to make a name for himself and only because he loves what, he loves his people, he's going to battle and going to war for his people. And so God protects them, delivers them, pursues them, builds a covenant with them. Why? And so um, I got a really challenging passage of scripture, but I'm going to unpack it. Okay, this is Romans 9. I'm I'm, going to finish up here. Romans 9, 15 through 18. Um, This is Paul, same letter that we read earlier. He says this. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And we read passages like that and it like messes us up a little bit if we're being real. But let me, let me tell you what I see. The compassion and the mercy of God is not earned but given. And it was given while you were at your worst. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, not while you earned it. That, that's basically what Paul's trying to say is, hey, listen, God is for you in such a way that when you were at your absolute worst is when he, he extended grace for you. This is why as followers of Jesus, we ought to be the most compassionate. We ought to be the most merciful. We ought to be the, the ones that express being, we ought to be slow to anger and abounding in love because we've been on the receiving end from God. That ought to mark our lives. Are you kidding me? Like this is, 
this is the reality of the gospel. Like, yes, I'm going to be merciful. Yes, I'm going to be compassionate. Instead of like being judgmental or instead of uh, showing the rest of the world that I've arrived or I have some kind of knowledge. That, instead of that, I'm going to like look in the same way that Jesus does and go, where's the broken? Where's the marginalized? Where's the humble? Where's the people who need compassion? Where's the people who need an abounding love? Where's the people who need mercy? And that ought to mark my life in the way, like this is what the Bible teaches us. My no Christian should, should walk with some judgmental swagger, but our salvation was given. Uh, it was given. It was a gift. So the idea is let's, let's, uh, let's be compassionate and be merciful and abound in love. And, and in reading through Romans 9, you might be thinking, yeah, but what if I'm like one of the ones that God just hardens my heart? Like, that's me. I just feel like that's me. God hardens my heart. I know that's me. I know I'm doomed. Like, you know, like, it's like, but I'm telling you, you're he- the fact that you're here, the fact that you're leaning in, the fact that you're showing up as an indication that that's not even true. You're the beneficiary of context. You have the entire word of God at your disposal. You grew up, when you grew up in the place that you grew up where we're free to worship, free to proclaim the name of Jesus, free to share the name of Jesus, free to go on mission, free to give, free to serve, free to love, free to be compassionate in the name of Jesus in a way that you've never been able, like more at your disposal now than ever before. The Bible's in more languages. The word of God is out in in ways that it's never been before. And you and I are without excuse. The idea is, do we have it in us to put aside idols, to put aside distractions, put God where he belongs, and then let our life align with the reality of his resurrection. That's what he's asking us to do in scripture. And you go, well, man, that's a really hard passage for me to stomach. The idea that God issues mercy, the God that the idea that God hardens hearts and things like that. And, but don't get, listen, the same guy who wrote that, same guy who wrote chapter nine, wrote this in chapter 10. And I'm going to end here says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's your heart, it's with your heart that you believe and you're justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. So Paul tells us, hey, there's a couple things that are really important when you feel like God's doing a work in you and he's revealing some things to you. One, there's a heart shift that has to take place and you have to surrender you have to lay down arms. Like literally, you have to lay your life down. And I know for some people, you could go places and people will tell you what it's like to give your life to Jesus or to experience salvation. And, and, and it is amazing. And it is awesome. And it is grace. But you lose yourself, but in a great way. And the question is, are you willing to lose yourself to find it? And are you willing to lay down your life and surrender so that you don't have to go 10 rounds? So that he doesn't have, you don't get to a point one day, one day where you go, all this time, I just keep hardening my heart over this relationship, over my finances, over my purpose, over this call that you have, over these things that I know, listen, I already read the book. I know what you're asking me to do. And yet I keep hardening my heart one day. He's just going to give you what you want. He's going to give you what you want. And so, but Paul tells us, Hey, if you, if you have this moment where you feel that tension and you just lay your life down and you fully surrender and go all in. God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? Help me to focus on becoming, serving and loving the people around me, not making it about myself, but making it about others, being compassionate, being merciful, abounding in love. God, help me to become that person. And if you actually lay your arms down and surrender, Bible tells us there's a heart shift that begins to take place. And then you confess him as Lord. And that's the thing that seals your salvation is your profession of faith. 
And so I just want to give us an opportunity here at the end of this message today to do just that. Whoever needs it. All of us need to be thinking about he is God. There's nobody above him. He is just, but he's also full of grace. What does that look like for each of our lives? And what idols or what, what distractions do I have that just keeps me from aligning myself with that truth? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for the way that you love us. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you that, uh, God, for those of us, um, as we step into uh, the courtroom and we realize, we realize we're guilty, we realize we don't deserve the amazing things that you give and the grace that you're offering in eternity in a relationship with you. We see our Heavenly Father on the bench and we see you in the witness seats interceding on behalf and, and taking, um, taking our punishment so that you can be just so that you can offer grace. And so God, today, for those of us who have a relationship with you, we just remember, help us to remember. God, by your word and by your spirit in this moment, I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember who we were before you met us. Help us to remember who we were before we came alive in you. And help us to remember that so often we leave things on the table. You've paid for more than what we've settled for in our Christian life and in our walk. Help us not to go through the motions, but give us over to the courage of conviction to actually trust you and then apply your word to our lives in a way. Help us to be fully obedient and surrender our lives, not to have other gods, not to have distractions, not that we can't have good things or great experiences, not that you don't love us or want us to experience all that. You just want to be Lord over our life. So help us to put you where you belong. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, again, the Bible tells us, it just told us that it is a heart moment. It's a belief in that Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, everything that you could ever possibly want, all of the future eternity that you could hope for, and all of the life that you could want this side of eternity is found in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and in your surrender to his will for your life. And so if you want to make him Lord of your life today, if you see him finally for who he is and you want to surrender and lay down arms, I want to give you an opportunity to confess him as Lord right where you're at. I want you to just raise your hand and say, that's me today. I want, to make him, I want to make him Lord of my life. I'm so tired of playing games. I'm so tired of going through the motions at church. I am so sick of just being on autopilot, but I want to fully surrender my life right where I'm at today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and think about it. What does that look like for me? Do I have things that, I mean, just keep me from God's will for my life? And right where you're at, if that's you, I want you to pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. In response to what you've done for me, the great exchange, God, I give you this brokenness and this sin and this baggage. And I know, but man, you have a way of redeeming and giving me over to more. So give me over to the full life that you promised. By your spirit, God, just show me who it is that you want me to become. Help me to focus on that. Lead me for the rest of my life, Lord. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.